Well, this morning, we come to that part of the drama in Gethsemane. Jesus has prayed. Jesus has called upon the Father to be clarifying his will. Remember, Jesus has asked this, if it is your will, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, if it is your will, I am here to drink this cup. And so after that has finished, he's prayed. And has he received the Father's will? Yes, he has. And this morning and in the next several weeks, we're going to see the significance and the effect and the power of Jesus' prayer, how it works out. And again, unfortunately, we typically don't link all of these kinds of activities together. Jesus did this, he had a meal, then he prayed, and then this happened, whatever. This is a line of activity every aspect of which is connected to and dependent upon and is the result of that which has already occurred or will occur. Do we see that? And so it is a continuous line. It is an activity. I'm not even saying these are the activities of Jesus. It is the activity of the Son of Man as coming to do the will of the Father. So he's finished praying. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, Father, again, as only you can minister to us this morning, Father. Father, minister the reality and the power of what happened so many years ago on our behalf, applying it to us, applying the good and the reality and the experience and the power and the effectiveness of what happened in this garden through one man. Father, that we can also say, in him and with him. We're going to get up and we will arise and do the will of our Father and walk in your ways, Father. No matter all hell itself come against us, and it will. No matter the circumstance, no matter how we are affected or afflicted, we will arise and walk in the power of your will, just as Jesus did. Father, we can do this because the life of the Son of God is in us by the Spirit. The power of the Son of God is in us by the Spirit. Your will for us has been accomplished by the Son and is given to us by the Spirit. So, Father, increasingly in us, make this so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what happens? He's finished praying. And when he's finished praying, he says, 
arise. Now think, the most horrific, the most difficult decision of Jesus' life has been made. How many of us have faced crushing decisions? How many of us have had to face decisions that we knew that whatever we decided, the outcome or the direction of our lives could be seriously altered? Any of us have a decision and have made decisions like this? And so we find ourselves wrestling with the decision. Now, unfortunately, too many believers wrestle with these decisions as to the effect of the decision concerning me and my ways and how I am going to be affected and what I want and my goals. That's the wrong wrestling, isn't it? Jesus doesn't wrestle like that. He is certainly faced with that temptation about himself. But he goes to God and the essence and the goal and the purpose of his wrestling in prayer is about God's will. Thy will be done no matter what. And so we've wrestled. And hopefully we have finally heard from God concerning the decision. And do you, do you relate to this? You've heard from God concerning the decision. And how do you know you've heard from God? Not because of how you feel, but because it is in moral correspondence to the will of God as revealed in the Scripture. Amen. Never allow your feelings to dictate whether or not you have heard from God. Can you say amen? Never allow your feelings to dictate whether or not you've heard from God. Jonah thought it was okay, and he was sound asleep and at peace in himself in the bottom of that boat, and he was outside the will of God. Where is the substance of what God's will is for us? In his word. So we've made the decision. The Lord has declared to us. And our decision is, yes, Father. How many of us have felt, okay, okay, the battle is over. The decision is made. I'm ready. Can you relate to that? Okay, it's going to be tough, but what? I'm ready now because the battle is over. And so this is where Jesus is. He's made the decision to go to the cross. And so the battle is over. At this point, Jesus has won the battle for man's disobedience. He has decided to do what he has talked about in John 12, 32. If the Son of Man be lifted up, he will do what? Draw all men to himself. And so in Gethsemane, is the culmination of Jesus' lifelong warfare against the accumulated disobedience of all of his people throughout history. That's what's happening here. This is not just the obedience of one man. This is not just one man deciding to do the will of God. This is one man who is carrying in himself 
the entire population of all of God's people of all time. And in this decision to obey the will of God, this one man is overcoming all the disobedience of all of us. Amen? And when he decides to obey, that means that God sees us in Christ. Where were we when Jesus was in the garden? Oh, I have to get through this. Where were we when Jesus was in the garden? In him. How do I know that? Galatians 2.20. Remember what Paul said? Galatians 2.20. You look it up if you can't remember it. And so, when he decides to obey, when he obeys, he is obeying not essentially for himself, but he is obeying for us. His obedience is putting away our disobedience, and his obedience is now seen by God the Father as our obedience. So that one day when he rises from the dead, God will now see each of us in him, having risen in him as his obedient people, even in the face of our continued disobedience. Amen? It's a big deal. Gethsemane is the turning point, the fulcrum. You see, now Jesus will atone for the sin of his people in order that they can receive the twin blessing of being justified by God. Remember what Romans 5.1 says? If I ask someone in here to quote Romans 5.1, you could. If you can't, you need to learn it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Having been justified, the twin blessings of justification. What are the twin blessings of justification? Romans 4.25 tells you. Jesus was put to death for our transgressions. So the first blessing or the result of justification is our forgiveness in the atoning death of Christ on our behalf. And then what does Paul say in the rest of that little section of Scripture? And he was raised, why? For our, what? Justification, which means this, that he was raised as God's man of righteousness, and God now, we in him being raised, has declared us not only to be not guilty, which is being to be justified, but also to be now just or righteous, even with the same righteousness of the Son of God. You see, we're not just forgiven. We're so much more than forgiven. We are forgiven and declared to be righteous. We are in God's sight the very righteousness of his Son. Can you say amen? We cannot be more righteous than we are today. Our works and our deeds do not make us more or less righteous It is important that our deeds and our works are part of the display of that righteousness, but it doesn't make us righteous. Can you say amen? Do you understand the difference? I'm working on putting together a presentation, whether it'll be a week or 20 weeks or 10 years, I don't know, of a a, uh, comparison 
of some of the basics of Catholic theology and Protestant theology. Because we need to know, where does purgatory come from? What does it have to do about this? Are they really trying to work for salvation? Or are they doing something else? And are they, Do they believe they're saved by grace through faith? Well, of course they do. But you need to come to hear when we start that something about this so we can have a better understanding of Catholic theology so when we relate to our friends and our relatives, most of whom, you know, most of all of us probably have houses filled with Catholic relatives and, 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 and friends, don't we? Not to be attacking them, but to at least understand their theology so we can relate to it biblically and not be attacking or talking about or discussing the wrong things. We need to be discussing the central issues of Catholicism. And so you just be praying for me that the Lord will give me the ability and et cetera to do that. When? As soon as God releases it. I don't know. So you go to God and find out. You see, in saying, let us arise, Jesus is now ready to go to the cross. For what purpose? Look at Hebrews two fourteen and 15. So that by Jesus' death, he might destroy him. Who is that? The devil. Remember 1 John 3, 8? The Son of God has appeared for this purpose that he might, what, destroy the works of the devil. So you see the author of Hebrews is relating to that passage. So that by his death, Jesus might destroy him, Satan, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This means this, and I might say it again, Jesus' embracement of death is death's death. Did the Romans kill Jesus? Yes and no. No in the natural sense. Yes in God's ability, God's will to inflict upon Jesus the penalty so that he would embrace death. But who decided to die? Jesus decided to die. And so he faces the cross knowing this, that he is going to have to embrace and endure and experience the worst thing that he as the eternal son of God can experience in the humanity of Jesus. Separation from the Father. Now, we don't get that. We don't get it because obviously we don't experience it. But for Jesus, this eternal fellowship with God is an unbroken fellowship of the Son of God with God the Father. But Jesus, the man, God the Son, taking on the humanity of the Lord Jesus, and in the humanity of Jesus, I'm sorry, of the Son of God, the Son of God experiences what it is to be separated from the Father. The Son of God himself is not separated from the Father. Can you say amen? The Son of God himself 
continually and everlastingly is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit in union forever. And that union can never in any way be altered or changed to any degree at all and God be maintained in himself as God. Can you say amen? Do you understand this? Because there's a lot of foolish teaching out there. So what happens at the cross? The Son of God takes on the penalty of death in the humanity of the Son of Man. And in the Son of Man, the Son of God dwelling, remember the nature of the Son of God indwelling the humanity of Jesus as the Son of Man, the Son of God experiences what it is to be separated from the Father. And so Jesus, the Son of God, I'm I'm sorry, the Son of Man, is horrified with this, is horrified with this. But he knows that he has to go through it. Why? In order to destroy death's grip and ability over God's people. So when Jesus embraces death or if you would, when death puts its clammy hands on the life of Jesus, Jesus all of a sudden grabs him. You weren't ready for that, were you? Jesus goes as the lamb, and death, I can just see, drooling. Remember the last enemy? Drooling. Frank, here he comes. Ah, Drooling, drooling. And as the Son of God goes to the cross, death drooling begins to put his clammy arms around the Son of God. And when he does, all of a sudden, Jesus turns the table on him and embraces him and drags death into death so that the death of Jesus is death's death for us. Did you get it? This is why the fear of death is no longer our fear. Except for the body of sin, which we better say, thanks be to God. I don't have to be like this and look like this and feel like this for eternity. How many of you are so enamored with who you are and where you are and how you are that this is where you want to be for the rest of eternity? Anybody in here want for that? (laughs) All right. How many of you, men especially, have wrestled with your little boy or girl and all of a sudden, quote, the little boy or girl got the better of you and held you down? Come on. Who's holding whom down? Right? You know who's going to win the wrestling match. That's what's happening at the cross. 46B. And while Jesus is speaking, Judas came up, one of the twelve, with him, a great crowd and swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Isn't it interesting? Swords and clubs of the cohort. There's a whole lot of soldiers with him. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is a man, seize him. See, it's nighttime. It's in the garden. You know, we don't want to grab the wrong guy. Okay. And he came up to Jesus at once saying, greetings, rabbi. Hey, Jesus, my friend. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then he came out and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. By the way, you see where it says friend? I wonder if Jesus actually called him friend or he said this, friend? I think Jesus says, 
friend, do what you're going to do. I don't think this was an approbative comment, uh, an approving comment of Jesus. Interestingly, Judas and the priests and the leaders believe they got him. We finally got him, right? We finally have him where we want. We're finally in charge of this man, and we're going to do what we want to do with him. Isn't this their attitude? We're going to put him on trial, and we're going to condemn him, and we're going to put him to death. Isn't this what's going on? That's the perspective of the natural. But what is really happening? Who is in charge of whom? Who is on trial? Who will be judged? And who will be condemned to death? Jesus or his adversaries? They were walking, if you would, into God's trap. And when they arrested Jesus, they were being arrested by God's justice. When they put Jesus on trial, and that'll be the next couple of weeks, God was trying them. When they condemned Jesus to death, God was condemning them to death. When Jesus died on the cross for our life, God was sealing their doom to death as those who had been outside of Christ, the only one who can give us life and the only place where there is life. That's what's going on. So who's in charge? Who is in charge? Well, in order to see that, and I think maybe it's in your notes. If we put John 18, 4 through 8 in your notes. Okay, let me read this passage. Okay, this is a picture. Remember, it's dark in the, in the garden. Jesus is in there. And here these guys come in. Judas is carrying. You saw the movie. They carry lights and torches, and they have swords and, and spears. And they, this is, these are soldiers coming in. These are men who have faced battle. These are men who have had scars and, and, and stabs and all of that kind of stuff. These are hardened soldiers. You don't go, boo, and the soldier goes, ha, 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 ha. These are men who are used to struggle and fighting. These are courageous, strong men. This who is coming in here with Judas. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Did you, did you get that? Let's read it carefully. Jesus, what? Knowing all. Who's in charge? What does that say immediately? Jesus is in charge. He knows who, what, when, how, why. He knows it all. Knowing all that would happen, came forward and said to them, who y'all looking for? <laughs> you know, rather than say, oh, my God, let's go hide behind the rock here. Yeah, I've actually heard it preached that what happened was that Jesus got himself into a corner. <laughs> Let me tell you this. If Jesus got himself into a corner, he got himself into a corner in order to draw his adversaries into the corner with him. Come on. Come on. 
I'm the lamb. Oh, yes. And as they grab him, the lion comes roaring out. (laughs) What have we done? And he says, whom do you seek? And they answered, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And here it is. And he says this in the Greek, ego Amy. I am. Well, so what? He says, here I am. No, that's not what he says. In this I am, he is proclaiming that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Remember, John has seven I am statements without a predicate, meaning I am without any other words. And then he has seven with a predicate. I am the door. I am the sheep. You know, except, I mean, I'm the shepherd, etc. So two sets of I am's. And every time it is referencing Jesus as the eternal Yahweh. And here's what he says. Whom do you seek? We're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am the Lord of glory. And what happened? What does the next verse say? Somebody read it. Somebody say it. What does it say? I don't remember. What does it say? And they what? I'm sorry. I can't hear anybody. And they all fell down. They fell down. Lester, they fell down. Now, why do you fall down if some rabbi says, here I am? They're not falling down because he has bad breath. They're not falling down because he has 10,000 soldiers behind him. They are falling down because he has announced to him them that he is the God of glory. And when he says, I am the power of God itself, swept over them like a spiritual tsunami and threw them to the ground. That's who this man is. That's who this man is. And they all kind of got back up. <laughs> what happened there? Well, I don't know, but okay. And Jesus says, whom do you seek? If they got back up. And he said, Jesus. And he says, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Who's, who's orchestrating the arrest? Please don't fall for this dribble that Jesus was arrested and put whatever. Jesus is orchestrating this arrest. Amen? So they bind him. So when we look at these verses, it's clear who is in control. It is clear who is in whose grip. It is clear who is being tried by whom. Now, can you imagine... Here's the son of man. He has walked on water. He has raised someone, two people, more than one, from the dead. He has, with a word, rebuked the winds and the waves. Remember in John 6? He's had, he has, with a blessing, fed thousands of men and women. And here is a man that they're going to put some ropes on to hold him down. And why do I emphasize this? Because we want to make sure that we see the utter uniqueness, the Kadesh, holy, Kadesh, unique, other than, the other uniqueness of God's love, of God's kind of love. 
Here is a man with a blink of his eye, not only could have torn off the bonds, bound, what do we call them? The bonds that held him, but also could have put them all to death in a moment in a blinking of an eye, right? In a blink of an eye, he could have all been finished. But look at the power of God's love. Jesus submitted to this having the ability to utterly destroy them all. And we say, I just can't keep on going. And we say, you don't know, it hurts, and I'm having a difficult time. Sisters and brothers in Christ, we don't know what difficulty is. We don't know what it is to feel I can't keep going. We don't know what it is to be attacked and to be vilified and to be ignored and to be spit upon and to be whatever. We don't know. Anybody really knows in relation to Jesus? Anybody in here, would you raise your hand and say, I know. And yet this man did not strike back. What kind of love is that? That's the love that God has given him for our salvation. And yet when it comes to my life and our lives and somebody absolutely barely touches something in me or about mine or me or in any way does something to disturb my little feathers, we rise up with anger and resent. Am I right or wrong? Who are we? We're vilifying the Son of God. We're making him to look like he's lost. Who are we in relation to who he is and what he's done? For whom has he done this? For me. For while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Where is that? Somebody, you should know where that is. At least I'll give you the chapter, Romans 5. Did somebody say verse 6? <clears throat> and then you remember, and I'm, I'm going to go through this quickly. Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus said, Lola, don't do this. Don't cut off any ears. No more swords. Why? What was happening here? Peter, like any of us, is acting according to his natural humanity. Here's my problem, James. I, as a man who has the Holy Spirit in me and who has been declared the righteousness of Christ himself, forgiven of every sin, still act out of my sinful, self-centered, self-elevating, self-protecting, self-promoting humanity in the face of what Jesus has done to free me of that way of living. Any difficulties anybody going through in here? Any at all? Anybody going through something in here? Anybody? No hands? No hands? Anybody? Anybody? Shall I start naming you? Oh, I know. I met with a whole lot of you in the room. 
Anybody in here? Oh, look, all the hands go up now. Yeah, yeah, don't tell on me. Don't tell on me. I know. I meet with people, and Jean lives with me. And I live with her. So we all need to be careful, Phil. And yet in the face, you see, our eyes are on the wrong person. If anybody had a right to respond and attack and vilify and complain, who did? Jesus did. But Celeste, why didn't he? For my sake. For my sake, Gwendolyn. For my sake. Doc, for my sake. My sake. Your sake. Peter is acting out of his humanity. And Jesus said, hey, 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 don't do that. Then look, when Peter does this, I believe it is part of Satan's temptation for Jesus to say, what am I doing? Let's get out of here. I think not only is Peter acting wrongly, sinfully, but he's being used again as, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus said that to him in what chapter of Matthew? 16. 16, you're right. But why is Jesus doing this? Look at verse 54. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? The Scriptures must be fulfilled. See, Jesus has entered the garden. Remember, we talked about the armor of God. And he enters the garden as the word of God, wielding the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. So they arrest Jesus and what happens? Then all the disciples left him and fled. Why did they do this? Why did they flee? Because it was the will of God to scatter them away from the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was a ministry that only one man could do, and he had to do it alone, having been forsaken by every other person. Why? Because nothing of our humanity in, the, in, in, in Adam can have anything whatsoever to do with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. They must be dispersed. So listen to what Isaiah 53, 6 says. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned everyone to his own way. God was getting rid of every vestige of of humanity under Adam so that the new humanity in Christ, his man, would alone and only pay the full price of our redemption. So finally, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. God's purposeful humanity, 
where is that verse? God's purpose for humanity, what verse? Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God's purpose for humanity. Finally, Adam having rejected that, finally, God has upon the earth the man after his image. Colossians 1.15 saying that Jesus, what, is the image of the invisible God. How do we know that? Because Jesus in 14, is it 6 or 9, sometimes I get those two words, um, to Philip. If you, I think it's 9. If you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and peace. Isn't it grace and peace? Truth. Grace and, grace and truth. Finally, God's image bearer is upon the earth. And now he will take all the consequences of the fall to the cross so that in his death as he accumulates all the disobedient men and women of God as he accumulates all that and dies and rises. So then on the day of Pentecost, God will then begin to declare the image of his son in a new risen people. Amen. Oh, have a good new year and see you in church in a few moments.